Welcome to the Thriving Wellness Podcast, where we encourage and empower everyone to live their lives up to their true potential and share valuable conversations that are translated into action steps for the lifestyle that makes you thrive. Here are your hosts, Ryan and AJ. Hey folks, welcome back to the Thriving Wellness Podcast. This is your host, Ryan Kennedy. And as many of you know, the importance of nutrition can't be overstated. Food is literally information to your body and will dictate how you feel, how you look, and how you show up in the world every minute of every day. Yes, it's, it's really that powerful. Sadly, our modern food system has made it more and more difficult to eat healthy. Nourishing your body with the right foods has become quite complicated, honestly. The reason I've become so passionate about creating nourishing, delicious recipes is because they're the missing link that bridges the gap between knowing what foods you should be eating and how to put that into practice to create a meal that satisfies your taste buds and nourishes your body. My guest on today's show is Pete Evans, the perfect person to discuss this topic with. Pete is an internationally renowned chef, author, and television presenter. His passion for food and a healthy lifestyle inspires individuals and families around the world. He created one of the best food documentaries on Netflix, at least in my opinion, called The Paleo Way. He co-hosts the number one cooking show in Australia, My Kitchen Rules, which is in its 10th season and is aired in 160 countries. He's written a ton of awesome cookbooks and has a great podcast called Heal with Pete Evans. So Pete, welcome to the show, man. Hey, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. It's a nice sunny day here in San Diego. How are you? Mate, fantastic. In Sydney, also, or actually near Sydney, in New South Wales, and it's a beautiful sunny day here too, start of the day. Awesome, man. I'd love, I'd love to start by diving into your backstory. What got you interested in cooking and, more importantly, teaching people how to cook healthy meals? Uh, interestingly enough, it was just a, uh, <laughs> a uh, life skill that I wanted to learn and an re- opportunity to move out of home as a 17-year-old. And um, cooking was a trade so to speak, or a craft that I could dive into as an apprentice chef. And um, it gave me the opportunity, number one, to move out of home so I could uh, see what the big wide world was like as a young, as a young adult or old child. <laughs> and um, that was basically it. And that took us on the journey. And, um, you know, I wanted to learn how to cook for myself. And I thought um, to do an apprenticeship, which is three to four years over here, uh, would be beneficial for the rest of my life. You know, I think there's so many life skills that we're not taught um, anymore through our, through our education system. And, and also um, with parents being so busy, it doesn't seem to be a priority in, anymore for children to learn how to cook. And that's where I was at. I was like, okay, well, I've got an opportunity here. I could go to college and become a builder, an electrician, a plumber, a hairdresser, a butcher, you name it. And I really gave it a thought and and said, um, which one will benefit me out of all of these trades that I could learn for the rest of my life? And cooking seemed to make the most sense because it's something that most of us will need to do on a day-to-day basis and why not get really good at it? Um, because then that can sustain us for the rest of our lives. Plus there's, there's so many benefits from learning how to cook. And one thing that I've learned is that if I can do it, anybody can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Like, and the chefing world seems to attract sort of the, I don't know if you've ever read kitchen confidential or watched any of those sort of, or read any of those books um, about 
the cooking trade, but it seems to sort of attract the misfits, the people that don't really fit into society, um, the ones that seem to have addictive personalities that also have a tendency for, I guess, alcohol and drugs. And they've usually been brought up in, in uh, environments that they haven't fitted into properly. So it's this really eclectic mix of, of different types of people that don't fit into the normal fabric of society, I, f- I found. And, um, and in that, that's when I realized that, you know, anybody can learn how to cook. If, if this is sort of the, 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 um, the, the type of people that, that get attracted to this, um, you know, there's, there's, there's absolutely no reason that anybody in the world couldn't learn how to cook. And um, it's something that I've, I've really sort of looked into over the 30 odd years that I've been doing it. And, and really tried to hone in on let's teach people some beautiful recipes that they can cook for themselves or their family or friends. And um, let's also add the nutrient side to it so that we can live a long and sustainable, healthy life. And that's one aspect you bring into your work that I love is the nutrition aspect, how that food impacts your body, because so many cooking shows have popped up that you know, are maybe very interesting for people to watch, but I find they provide very little practical advice for the average person who's looking to get back in the kitchen. So what inspired you to create these shows and documentaries with these functional cooking tips for healthy foods that are actually nourishing us? Well, it's interesting. I have a, um, I guess the way I look at things from a, I guess from a creative side is what's missing from the landscape. And the further I looked into cooking shows, as you say, and what's available on television, and even the documentaries that are out there on Netflix and and different modalities, none had seemed to really tick the boxes as far as sharing the truth, in my perspective, uh, from my point of view anyway. And what I mean by that is there didn't seem to be any TV shows out there that taught people how to cook healthy, nutritious food, but also looked at the sustainability issues that we all face. And it got me thinking, I was like, why isn't this out there? And the simple answer to that is that um, most cooking shows are funded by companies or, or um, I guess, products that are out there that have, I guess, that's not their priority. So if you look at some of these shows, you know, um, especially the branded content shows, they're usually multinational food corporations or um, products that are out there in the marketplace that you'll find in most supermarkets, for instance, that have no basis in helping people along with their healthy journeys or helping the planet. You know, they're generally, you know, um, vegetable oils, refined uh, food stuffs or products like uh, margarine, vegetable oil, refined sugars, uh, processed sources, these types of things that you'll see, you know, even, you know, it, it doesn't even actually just invade the food shows that are out there. You can watch the latest um, episodes of Stranger Things, for instance, on Netflix, and you will see that every episode there is an ad in there that is woven into the storyline that either promotes Dunkin' Donuts or uh, 7-Eleven or Coca-Cola or any of these uh, multinational food corporations. And once you see how these um, 
I guess, these, these corporations or industries or products uh, infiltrating everything that you see, <laughs> you know, you, you get to sort of join the dots, which is why the shows like I, I created and my team created like the paleo way or the magic pill are completely self-funded because there's actually, there's, there's very few companies or industries out there that I could actually go to, to say, Hey, do you want to, do you want to help fund this show? Because there's, I, I guess, um, we have integrity over what we want to put in the show. And, um, you know, if you yeah. watch the paleo, there's, there's nothing in there, but fresh fruit and vegetables and, and also, uh, holistically farmed, um, meat products or sustainable seafood. So, you know, that's why there's a niche and that's why there's not many of these shows. So it's up to individuals if they choose to, uh, to create these, these, um, informative, but also inspirational shows. That's a really great point you brought up. I mean, I find the same thing holds true in so many facets of health is that the big conglomerates that are making all the money from this processed junk and from some of these unhealthy products are so good at getting into the media and and really brainwashing people in very subtle ways to think that these things are normal. think that these things are, are fine when in actuality, it's horrible for your health and horrible for your body. And so just for people listening in who may not be familiar with your work, could you outline your nutritional philosophy? Sure. It's, it's pretty simple. It's meat and vegetables. <laughs> it's, it's That's what it's all about, man. Pretty much, you know. I mean, I, I try not to go by any labels, but um, if you really wanted to put a label onto it, the, the one that introduced me to this style of eating was paleo. And when you look at the word paleo, it just means old. Uh, when you un, you know dig a little deeper, it just means, you know, basically – uh, our evolutionary history as human beings as hunter gatherers for ninety nine point five percent of our of our human evolution. So uh, paleo equals old, which means hunter gatherers, which means what are we? We're human beings. And if you look at the definition of human beings, it's very simple. We're omnivores. So what does it mean to be an omnivorous human being based on hunter gatherer evolutionary history? And it's meat and vegetables and meat obviously uh what falls under that is meat and like land-based animals um seafood obviously and i'd throw eggs into that as well and then that's what we could gather and generally it would be seasonal it would be regionally uh wherever geographically located where we are you know so it would be the berries it would be the honey it would be the the roots the tubers the, the herbs the spices these types of things and then what ratio would you put that in and again you would sort of look and what I tend to do is just work with the seasons and and listen to our bodies so in the warmer months or if you have a warmer climate it seems to be a lot fresher a lot cleaner a lot lighter types of foods and if you're in a cold climate or when the seasons come and it's winter or autumn then you sort of adapt to that and for me it becomes more nourishing it's more broths and curries and braises and stews and these types of slow cooked um, dishes that are very nourishing and comforting so it's it's the framework I think is some well-sourced and and this is the key you know well-sourced or holistically farmed uh, land-based animals or sustainably caught seafood that um is as close to nature intended. And that might seem strange for some people to go, what do you mean as, as close to nature? I would say wild caught seafood is, is the ultimate or grass fed 
our pasture-raised animals is actually the closest thing that we have to natural nutrition on the planet. And then we sort of supplement with some vegetables or fruits or nuts and seeds or spices and herbs. But I made the analogy yesterday to somebody that was saying, you know, um, plant-based is, is key. And I was like, well, you know, if we were watching a movie, um, we have these different actors that, that take part in a film, for instance. And we, as we know, we have the stars, you know, the latest Quentin Tarantino film. The stars of that film is Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie, for instance. And I would say they're the main stars. And then you've got the co-stars or the supporting actors in there. Um, it could be whoever else is in that film that plays a, um, a supporting role. And I feel like it's the same thing with nutrition. The main stars that, that carry the story is animal fats and protein. And then the supporting actors for our nutrition are the plants, uh, the plant-based world. You know, it's, they're important. But really, the things that hold us up best are those animal uh, fats and proteins from well-sourced animals. So that's what I say. I mean, you can make a film with supporting actors, but is it going to give you the impact or, or that sort of that, um, that wow factor? And I think our bodies are really looking for that wow factor each and every day. So yeah, um, that's, that's my a, simple analogy. That's an awesome analogy. And I, I love that you touched on the sustainability and, and quality aspects because that's something I feel is get lo gets lost because our food system has made even meat and seafood kind of hard to get good quality stuff because we have all this factory farming of land-based animals. We have farming of fish and the, the food that's fed to these animals and their living conditions is horrific and it makes the animals unhealthy and destroys the environment. And then it as a byproduct isn't very good for us. And so it's important to source well, properly raised, well-fed animals that are eating their native diet, feeding on grass in open pasture, getting fresh air and, and, and fresh water and sunshine. And like you mentioned, sustainably caught wild seafood is a big factor too, because there's so many fish farms and overfishing of our oceans. And so you got to really look at the source of where your animal protein is coming from, but it really does comprise the, the best source of nutrition for humans when, it, when it's done right. Mm, and it, it also adds to the environment too. You know, they're, they're pooping good poop into the, under the land, which helps the soil, which helps the ecosystem and um, all of that. I mean, it, it's, it, it's sort of a no-brainer these days. I mean, I think the, the, the jury's definitely um, made its decision. Um, but now we're just being, again, I guess, bombarded through the media about this plant-based lifestyle and and i get it you know i i understand why but a lot of people probably aren't aware to the reasoning behind it and all you need to do is see that there's a lot of money to be made by these uh plant-based uh products that are being really pushed through um and you only have to look at who's behind this agenda to realize that it's it's you know some of them may have their hearts in the right place, but maybe have a little bit of misinformation there. But they also, there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of profit margin to be made by pushing these, I guess, uh, fake, <laughs> fake meat products, which you are going to see a lot more of. And um, I mean, it's a telltale sign when our fast food institutions like McDonald's, uh, Burger King, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken or KFC, uh, and Domino's, for instance, are really pushing 
uh, fake meat products into their menus. Um, you know, if if they can be persuaded, <laughs> then you know, <laughs> these are companies that have built their reputation and their and their whole, I guess, identity around serving meat. That's it. That's their DNA. And these these companies have felt the pressure to change, you know, and if that can happen to those people, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting space. So just be aware why this is happening. And if you choose to go down that path, I would say do as much research from both sides so you can make a, a well-informed decision. Yeah, that's the key. And I hate to see it, all these fake meat products popping up based with tofu and all these questionable ingredients that people who are really trying to improve their health are just misled to believe these are healthy alternatives when in actuality, they're horrific alternatives. And there's so many uh, button pushing documentaries like Cowspiracy and What the Health, which really push a vegan agenda and mislead people with poor research and misinterpretation of the research. And it drives me crazy because it's it, they become so popular. And so, so many people are converting to this plant-based lifestyle. Most of them are not doing it in a healthy manner. And if you ask me, there's no way to do it long-term in a healthy manner because you're lacking so many essential nutrients. And so that's why I was so glad to come across your films, which provide the accurate recommendations and the stuff people should be eating and should be hearing. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, sitting sort of halfway between this. I'm, I'm a curious observer of, of, mainstream uh, media, but also mainstream, um, I guess, popularity or popular culture. And I see the vegan and vegetarian movement as being very popular at the moment. And on one side, I'm like, mm, this is really interesting. But on the other side, I'm actually quite optimistic because my, I myself went through that about close to 30 years ago. I was a, I would call a hardcore vegan. And, you know, what attracted me to that lifestyle was exactly what we were talking about. Um, better environmental health for the planet, better treatment of the animals and individual health and social health and community health. And I thought I had it all worked out 30 years ago or 20, yeah, close to 30 years ago. So I adopted this and I studied every single book I could on veganism, vegetarianism, how it can help the planet. And I was of the belief that this was the only way forward on so many levels until my health started to deteriorate over time. You know, I felt great for the first year. I have to say from a standard Australian diet, which is very similar to a standard American diet to adopting a, a vegan diet. I felt amazing. Like no lie. My, I felt such great clarity for the first six months to a year. And I, I also changed it changed a few of the things I was doing as well. I started, stopped drinking alcohol. I started meditating. I started making kombucha, you know, before it was uh, popular. <clears throat> and down that path, I was like, wow, I feel so clear. I feel this is it. I found it, you know, I wanted to tell everybody about it. And I did. <laughs> but then about a year later, I was like, it started to sort of unravel and it didn't unravel fast. It started to unravel very slowly for me. I was like, Ooh, I don't feel as good today as I did last week. And that went on for a few years, but I held that belief. I was like, come on, Pete, you, this is right. You felt so good. And it took me about three or four years until I was in a point of 
I actually was feeling worse than I did when I was on a standard Australian diet. I was like, fuck, I've got to change something here. And could I change the way that I ate? It was, it was so hard for me to actually change that belief because I'd created this belief in myself that I was doing the right thing for myself, the planet, the animals. And then I had a steak. And actually it was, it was, I went to a dinner actually, and it was a truffle dinner, being a chef, truffles are fantastic. And I remember it was veal and I was like, fucking hell, (laughs) veal, like as a vegan, like the worst possible thing, like a baby cow. And, and it was basically saying, eat me, you know, in my own head. I was like, really? And I ate it and I was like, okay, something clicked in that first mouthful that I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to do. This is what I need to do. But you know what? So many of the things that I held deeply ingrained in in my belief system, I want to help the planet. I want to help the animals. I actually want to help myself to be the best uh, living example that I can be of myself to evolve and to grow. And what is the one shift? The only shift that I made was to include well-sourced animal food back into my diet, um, animal fat and protein. So I hold pretty much the same principles as many vegans do. We actually have more in common than say people eating a standard American or standard Australian or standard Western diet. So I see why this movement is happening. And as you can appreciate too, Ryan and many of the listeners, so many people in the ancestral community that follow a Western A price or paleo or keto or low carb or carnivore approach have all of these same founding beliefs and principles that we hold very dearly. We want a better planet. We want better health for our community. We want better treatment of our animals like the vegans and vegetarians do. But And so many in this community were once vegans because of this. And it was just this one change this one thing that actually we really have opened our eyes to see this can actually benefit us. This can benefit the planet. So I'm sort of optimistic in a way that I'm sort of hoping that people can snap out of that standard Western diet or the sad diet as it's called. And if they have to switch to this vegetarian vegan movement for it to be the step to, I guess, where we are, then so be it. You know, that's what I had to go through for my realization and for my understanding and my awakening. So I'm actually seeing this as a positive step in the right direction. Now it may take some people a year to wake up or it may take people 10 years or maybe they won't as well. But even just having that sort of understanding or that belief that they want a better life for the planet and the animals and themselves, that has to be better than being blind and just going to the supermarket and eating the Twinkies or the, the, the bread or whatever it may be, the refined sugars and, and the shit meat. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. There yeah. Has, I, I see it and I, I don't want to condemn anyone for their choices because we're all on this individual, uh, individual journey. And I, I don't condemn the people that are eating the standard American, the standard Australian. It's just like, okay, you're on your journey you may come to this or you may not. And it's not for me to judge 
and it's not for me to dictate how you live your life. So I see positivity in, the, in this vegetarian and vegan movement, but I do want people to understand why there's a big push through mainstream media. I love that. And you touched on some great points, Pete, because your story is so similar to millions of others out there. And I do agree that a vegan diet can be a, a very effective short-term tool. I mean, different approaches like the fasting mimicking diet from Walter Longo. And, you know, I've even incorporated things like that for short bursts of time. And it can be, people feel really good at the beginning, but these things do start to catch up with them. And like you mentioned, they mean well, and we have a lot of similarities and a lot of things in alignment with the vegan or vegetarian community because we do want the same things. And ultimately, if they do have the discipline to incorporate a vegan diet, which is not easy to do, I mean, it's a very strict diet, uh, then they absolutely have the ability to eat healthy. And once they kind of make this shift or you know come to their own conclusions over time, I agree with you. I think it is a, a step in the right direction. People are waking up and they are at least caring about these things, which is the first step. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. So one thing I wanted to ask you, Pete, because, you know, so few people these days actually cook on a daily basis. You know, so mm -hmm. many people go out to eat and they very rarely utilize their kitchen. So what are a few things you found that make a, a big difference for getting people back in the kitchen and prioritizing cooking their own meals and their own food? Yeah, great question, mate. And uh, I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting. I think um, I think priorities in life um, dictate everything that we do, what we value most. So if you do not hold um, uh, health as your number one priority or one of one of the top priorities in your life or um, or values in your life, then it can be very tricky to make cooking um, that part and 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 something that you really want to get stuck into um i actually love it <laughs> i enjoy it to a degree that i don't find it a chore i actually look forward to what am i going to eat today you know and it, it uh, and every day is different you know and some days are the same <laughs> it's that paradox you know i'm happy to eat the same food two times in a, in a row or three times in a row. If I make a big pot of something, you know, it could be, you know, I make a big yesterday. I made a big pot of lamb soup, you know, slow cook some lamb shoulder and in a beautiful broth. And that is going to be featuring in our family meal for the next couple of days. And it might change a little bit. We might actually take some of the meat out and turn that into a little pie, uh, that my wife will make a uh, cauliflower crust for, um, but I guess I, for each and every one, it's different. You know, some people associate mealtimes with, you know, not great experiences in their life. You know, some people probably might have brought up, been brought up in a family where dinner times was about arguing between mum and dad or fighting between the siblings. So that can create a, a, a long-term pattern for people where they associate sitting around with dinner as a not an enjoyable experience. Um, some people view eating as a, as a way of, I guess, comforting themselves through, um, I mean, the, the classic example that we showed in The Magic Pill was um, one of the ladies and families was that 
they went to McDonald's any time that they wanted to celebrate anything. You know, you did well at school. Let's go get McDonald's. Um, you're not feeling good. Let's go McDonald's. So food becomes this sort of reward thing for a lot of people, which they parents have sort of brainwashed their children into associating with junk food. So that sets up these, I guess, belief systems or patterns where people have this, I guess, this relationship with food that isn't founded on we're going to sit around the table in a loving environment where we're going to communicate with each other and we're going to nourish ourselves. So for me, it is about creating new patterns or new environments and trying to break those old patterns for, for anybody that has that. Now, how do you do that? The first thing is finding out whether you want to do that or not. Do you want to turn mealtimes into a joyous experience that can become very nourishing? Um, and that's a question each and every one of us has to ask themselves. You know, I made it a decision with our family, you know, that our intention is that every dinner time or every mealtime we sit together regardless. And there's no television that is, that is on unless we choose to have that experience in front of a television. And I think we might've only done that once in our, in our, in our journey so far as, and the kids are 13 and 14 now, but, we sit together and we put some great music on. And if we cook, it's, um, it can be a, a family affair or one of us can do it or two of us can do it, you know, and every day is different. You know, I, I try not to stick to any hard and fast rule because that adds, adds to pressure, but here's how I like to do it. Um, whether I'm cooking with my wife or not, and sometimes we come together to create a meal, she might do the salad or the vegetable component. I might do the meat or vice versa. Or I might say, I'm cooking for everyone tonight. Or she might say, I'm taking the role to, to nourish you all. It's my gift tonight. So that's one thing, one way of looking at it. Because I know so many people, that's the role of one person in the family, the, the caregiver. I'm the cook and nobody else is, is going to do it because nobody else puts their hand up. So it's relegated or, uh, to that one person. So I have so many people that say, I just don't like cooking, Pete. So I say, well, how could you enjoy cooking? You know, I used to run restaurants for 20 years and every single day I would choose, I would be the DJ in the kitchen for my team. And I would choose the music most of the time because I wanted to create an uplifting environment. And that generally revolved around playing the Beatles or eighties music that was a bit daggy or a bit, um, you know, upbeat, you know, a bit poppy. Mm -hmm. So what I still do is put on some beautiful music that is uplifting when we go to cook, you know, and even that, in itself can bring a smile to our face, which can change the energy. You know, some people like to listen to Tibetan bowls, you know, that sort of chanting music when they're about to prepare music. Other people like to put on, you know, as I said, the Beatles or Fleetwood Mac or whatever it may be, or meditation music. Some people like to put on headbanging music, you know, heavy metal, you know, that that's that for them is is what motivates them, you know, and each and every one of us has a different thing that 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 motivates them. Some people could put on some aromatherapy, you know, and, and put on some calming or energetic um, essential oils that can permeate the kitchen. So I'm, I'm of the belief that 
it's up to each and every one of us to find the key that works for them. Um, and it can also be as when it comes to recipes, if you're not confident, start with something simple. You know, it could be as simple as frying an egg and that's the first day. Second day, you might learn how to fry a minute steak or cook a minute steak. Next day, you could learn how to make a chicken broth or a chicken and vegetable soup. You know, these are really simple recipes that take five minutes to prepare. You know, it could be as simple as just learning how to use one ingredient and using it well. So we could start with meat. We could go to fish. We could steam some fish and serve it with a simple mayonnaise and a salad on the side. It doesn't have to be difficult. So go online, follow some paleo recipes, some ketogenic, some carnivore, some low carb, healthy fats some primal recipes and start that way. You know, there are so many blogs out there that teach people how to cook with two or three ingredients. Well, that's start the there. Yeah. Mm. People and then tend- build up. Yeah. I was just going to say people tend to overcomplicate it, but it can be extremely simple. You don't have to make these extravagant meals. And I, I I really like some of your thoughts on how it does vary based on the person and everyone's unique, but I do believe people don't inherently have a love for cooking necessarily, but it's something you cultivate over time. Just like most people, when they dabble with exercise or other things, they may not like it at first, But as they get into the routine and they reap the benefits and they see the value and they start to immerse themselves in it, it brings this whole new level of passion to that activity or to cooking. And I found that with myself. I never used to like cooking. And over time, I developed a deep passion and a deep love for cooking. And it's not like it happened overnight. Like I just decided, oh, I'm going to start cooking. It was more so an evolution and a growth process where I saw the value and I saw the benefits it was bringing me and my loved ones and the people around me. And that's where I think people need to just kind of start. It's just start slow, start easy. If you do value your health, you do value the health of your loved ones, then it is a practice that's integral to all of our lifestyles. Mm, and, and what I love about it too is, you know, from a purely selfish point of view, it's one of the best ways that you can love yourself each and every day. It's, um, it's self-nourishment. And yeah. if you can sort of look at that as, okay, each and every day I'm going to, you know, it's just one of your practices to cultivate that self-nourishment, that self-love. And that could be it, you know, today. I'm going to love myself. And how am I going to do that? I'm actually going to take time and give myself the most nourishing foods that I can. Mm -hmm. Which can also be a very meditative process, chopping vegetables and preparing food. And like you said, with the right environment, whether you're listening to music or a podcast or audiobook, whatever, it's a very enjoyable time for yourself to really get immersed in the experience. And that's something I love about it so much. Mm. So uh, get out there, have it, enjoy it, and don't put too much pressure on you. It's funny, like, I've learned one thing. I can't please everybody. Um, A lot of my recipes are a little bit, I guess, complicated. Um, And some of them are really simple. And when I share really simple ones, people go, oh, I'd love something a little bit more challenging, Pete. Or when (laughs) when I share the challenging ones, they're like so many ingredients. No wonder I don't like cooking. Have you got yeah. anything simpler? <laughs> you know, so, so work it out for yourselves and have it, just have fun with it. Yeah. And so one, one other thing, one of the biggest struggles I find with people I work with in my practice is 
getting their families on board with healthy nutrition and the lifestyle hmm. practices and things I teach them. They're often quick to make these changes, but they find it's a constant struggle to get their kids to eat the healthy meals they prepare. Now, I know you're a family man, Pete, and you have a few young kids who you've raised on an incredibly healthy diet. So could you share some of the strategies you've incorporated to get your kids to eat nourishing foods? Yeah, just make it delicious. <laughs> Seriously, that's all you have to do. Just yeah. cook delicious cook delicious food. And that might sound a little bit facetious or a little bit, you know, um, you know, just like I've worked it out and, and other people haven't, but it seriously is the key. If you can cook something delicious and for it to not to be challenging. I mean, I'll give you an example. Yesterday we put a platter out, uh, my wife and I, our youngest daughter, she's 13. She's here um, on school holidays with us at our farm. And we absolutely love blood sausages, my wife and I. Blood sausage, is, it's blood pudding. So basically it's a sausage that is made from pig's blood and pig's fat and some spices. And it's, they have versions of this all around the world in different cultures. In Scotland, they've got the haggis. In Korea, it's called sundai. Uh, in Vietnam, they've got a different name for it. In um, Spain, it's called a morcilla or a morcilla. In um, France, it's called a boudinoir. In England, it's called a blood pudding. So it's, it's this, and that's just to name a few places that actually create a sausage like this. Because once upon a time, we would never waste anything, including the blood. So we've used, worked out ways as human beings to use every part of the animal. And as chefs, we love offal. Like it's the it's the ultimate sort of badge of honor as a chef to not only learn to love offal, but learn how to cook it in ways that you can put it on your menu so that your customers that are squeamish or, or have never tried it could try it in a way that just blows them away. This is why you, whenever you go to a, a good restaurant, there's always offal on the, on the menu. And it could be in the form of pate, or it could be brains, or it could be bone marrow, it could be kidney, or it could be a um, bone, um, you know, even as simple as some pig's ears or tail, you know, not necessarily offal, but just nose to tail eating literally. Mm-hmm. Now, so we cooked blood sausage yesterday, but we put it out on the table and we had blood sausage. We also had some hot dogs from this wonderful company in Australia called Cleavers that make, um, it's very similar to an America to, I think it's Applegate. They do these wonderful hot dogs that are from hundred percent grass fed organic beef with very little extras in there, except, um, a little rosemary salt, so to speak as the preservative. And so we put that out. We had some fish pate on the, on the table as well, and an assortment of salads and vegetables and dips and seed crackers. Now, could we get our daughter to try the blood sausage, even though she's tried it before and she didn't like it? She's just like, there ain't no way I'm eating that today, dad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But that's okay. You know, she had her other hot dogs and she had the salads and the other ingredients on there. But what she is seeing is us eating that. So we're normalizing that in her perspective, you know, and it said to her, I said, you know, maybe you're not going to eat it today, but I guarantee within the next three years, you will be eating this and you will be loving it. And it's up to you when you decide to take that next step. But we don't change the way that we eat because 
we're we're not di- we're not dictated by our children. What you know what I mean? Like so many people, I guess, change the way they eat to fit in with their children. And I'm not saying cook two different meals, but I'm saying once in a while, when you want to eat something or you want to explore something, explore it, but also don't force your children to eat it. You know, and I think that's, that's the key. I mean, when I was a, I've heard so many stories of these children that were forced to eat foods that they didn't love, which created this sort of this, this hatred against food and made them fussy. You know, you won't leave the table until you eat your vegetables. You know, we don't do that. You know, there's a reason I think that vegetables, kids do not really like vegetables. And I'll go back to that analogy about the film and the, the, the main stars. You know, I, in, intuitively and innately, children do not want to be filled with vegetables because I do not personally think, and this is just my perception, that it's the key, you know, and there's such a push at the moment to be feeding our kids vegetables. Why isn't there a push to be feeding our kids the most nourishing foods on the planet, which is healthy animal fats and proteins? That should be the thing that we're all pushing and celebrating. So we have to be very careful as parents not to create the wrong relationship when it comes to food. You know, we will have vegetables on the table for, our, for the kids and, you know, eat your broccoli, but we're not forcing a whole plate full of broccoli down their throats. Because again, I do not think it's the, the, the key here for their, um, for their health. You know, it can play a role, but it's not the star. So I'm a huge fan of serving lots of well-sourced meat or seafood for every meal or eggs for the kids. That's, that's the star. So going back to how do we create this relationship with the kids to, to explore, um, I would say let them watch you explore foods. So, so many parents say, I have really fussy kids. And I'm like, hmm. How fussy are you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. Because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And, yeah. you know, there are different, there are certainly, and I've, I've worked with a lot of parents that have children with, uh, they're on the autism spectrum and then have sensory processing um, um, issues when it comes to food. But most of these kids really g- generally in, do enjoy meat in some form. You know, that seems to be the, the, the thing that they will go towards. You know, they will go towards the sausage or the piece of steak or the paleo chicken nugget, for instance, like that type of thing. So stick with that and then maybe incorporate a little bit of fermented veg if you can, some sauerkraut or add a little bit of that into a little dressing or something like that. And just be patient. You know, it's, it's, it's not a sprint here. (laughs) It's, Mm. it's, it's lead by example. What we did yesterday, we, we normalize that we're eating this sort of food that none of her friends probably would eat. And again, that is just showing a little bit, a little bit of diversity, a little bit of normal, normalness around challenging foods. And we're not forcing you. You know, I didn't say you have to eat a piece. But in saying that, a few years ago, we did that with pate and a little bit here, a little bit there. Now pate is one of their favorite foods. We did it with oysters. You know, every time we'd go to a restaurant, we would eat oysters. I'd encourage the kids to try one. and 
it was yuck, yuck, yuck for the first few years. But after a while, now my youngest daughter, Indy, she'll sit down and eat three oysters and she will look forward to it. You know, can we get to four? Not yet. My, <laughs> oldest, my oldest daughter is on one oyster at a time, but she still doesn't love it. But she's still willing to try one every time we go to a good restaurant to try an oyster. And for me, that's, that's success. That's yeah. like, okay, we're, they're stepping out of their comfort zone. They're trying something that they don't really like yet, but they're expanding their palate. And yeah. that's a great thing. Absolutely. I love your perspective on this. That's so awesome. And one thing I have learned, I don't have kids, but what I've learned from other people is that kids do really love variety. They love to be in the position to choose what they want. So if you only present them with one option, uh, even if it's a healthy, good tasting option, oftentimes they may be resistant. But if you provided them like you did with your example, the blood sausage, the healthy hot dogs, some dips, some, some veggies, they feel like they're in control and they can pick and choose what they want. I think that's a big component. And it, the other thing, like you mentioned, just lead by example. You can't beat that. You got to live what you're preaching that to them. And that's so huge for your nutrition and food, but in all aspects of health and all aspects of life. So I, I love that you, you brought that up as well. Mm. Yeah. Thanks brother for, for allowing me to, to explore that with you. And is, one, one of the things I learned is, you know, whether it's true or not, but they say that, um, and this is what a lot of the, um, uh, people I work with in the autism space, they say that usually it takes 10 attempts for a child to, to, I guess, start to appreciate a new flavor. So don't give up after the first time or the second time, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. sometimes it takes 10, sometimes it takes 20 and we have to think back and, you know, I was the fussiest kid in the world. Like I really was. And I decided to become a chef. And funnily enough, we end up being attracted to things that we need to evolve in ourselves. Mm -hmm. We end up facing the fears in our lives that, you know, we, we really don't want to, but for our own personal growth, it's sort of, we choose paths where we can grow the most in our lives. And for me being a chef, just, you know, looking back at it, being the fussiest kid, I was like, Oh, I'm so fearful of food and different foods. I became a chef and all of a sudden I was like, oh shit, I've got to learn how to not only try offal, but learn to love it. And I hated oysters. I hated offal. I couldn't think of anything worse. But I put myself in a position where now, guess what my favorite foods are? Offal and oysters. Oh, like, I love that. Like my favorite, like if my deathbed, what you asked me, I want to eat bone marrow. I want to eat oysters. I want to eat liver. I want to eat brains. I want to eat sweet breads. I want to eat the, well, I want to eat blood and yeah. sausage. <laughs> you know, that to me is the, and for dessert, you know what I'm going to eat? Oysters. You know, I'll start with oysters <laughs> and I'll finish with oysters. Oh, and, and that's a I great had a place to be because those are the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. And like you mentioned, your palate does evolve and change and you have to develop and acquire a taste for these foods. I mean, think of all the people that, that love coffee or, or like the taste of alcohol. They didn't like it the first time they tried it, but their bodies enjoyed the effects. And so they cultivated the palate to now they love the taste of coffee. And the same thing goes with, like you said, organ meats and oysters and all these obscure foods. Yeah. And the obscure ones, if we go back again to the start of the podcast, where we look at our hunter gatherer ancestors, these were not the obscure foods. They were the ones that they wanted to eat first and foremost. And I've, mm -hmm. I've, I've sat with uh, indigenous cultures around the world and that, you know, they see these foods as the 
ultimate flavor bombs for them. That's, that's what they go for. You know, the, the eye fillet for instance, or the, the fillet steak or the chicken breast, you know, that's, that's sort of like, that's the last thing they go for. You know, if I've got to eat it, we'll eat it, but we'll, we'll dry it out into jerky or something like that. You know, <laughs> seriously, it's, it's not, it's, it's not on the top of the list. It's the last thing they go for. So I would say if you have a fear around this or an awkwardness or uncomfortableness or it challenges you, I would say that's, that's the area for most personal growth. And for instance, like this podcast and my other second biggest fear was public speaking, you know, equally as, as, as terrifying as eating awful oysters. And now I went down a path for self-discovery to be able to speak to thousands of people up on stage without not caring what anyone thinks anymore. And so it's in these moments of, I guess, fear or uncomfortableness or self-doubt about who we are. That's the most growth that we can have. So feel into that. Next time you're at a restaurant or you're at the markets or the butcher store and you're looking at all the food available for you and just go, hmm, maybe there's, there's some growth here for me and maybe it's going to be challenging, but <clears throat> maybe it's going to be challenging, but how rewarding is that going to be? Especially if I can walk into this butcher store in two years time and know that I have the ability to cook with anything in here and turn it into a delicious meal for myself. Think about that. And, and it's just a change of perception. And that's all we need to have on this journey of, of life. You're spot on, man. And that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Pete, for being such a positive force for change in this world. You have inspired me personally and millions of others around the globe. So keep up the great work, man. Ryan, thank you for having me and thank you everyone for listening. And Ryan, thank you for your flexibility. I know it's taken a little while and you've been so patient with me. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. And one last thing, where could people find you to learn more about your work? Uh, simplest place is probably social media. Uh, Pete Evans Chef, I think I'm under or Chef Pete Evans. Uh, you'll find me there sharing little uh, tidbits, lots of blood sausages, lots of oysters, lots of offal <laughs> uh, on, on those stories. So hopefully you'll get a little bit of inspiration and also the Magic Pillars on Netflix and YouTube and the Paleo A TV series is also on Netflix and YouTube if you choose to uh, want to learn more about this, um, this amazing journey around food. I highly recommend everyone check out those documentaries. They're some of my favorite food documentaries I've seen on the internet today. And so thank you, Pete. It was great chatting with you, brother. Cheers, brother. Thanks for listening in. You can find the show notes and resources at thrivingwellness.co slash podcast. We encourage you to share your biggest takeaways with us on social media and share the show with your friends and family. If you found this episode valuable, leave us a five-star review. Your feedback helps to support us on our mission to positively impact as many people as we can with this information. Join us for our next episodes where we will be interviewing leading wellness professionals to inspire you in your health journey. Until next time.